Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've always been fascinated by the human voice, which experts say is as unique to each person as their fingerprint. In these podcasts, we celebrate the human voice in all its wonderfully diverse forms, young and old, different accents and cultural contexts. Writers sometimes struggle to find their own voice, but you can kind of tell when someone is speaking from a place of authenticity and integrity. That's when I most love listening to voices. Thank you for listening. This Humankind special project, The Power of Nonviolence, is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by a major grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. The cumulative effect of what I did and saw, it's not that it was just brutal and everyday gore and hell, but the stress over time wears you down. How military veterans can begin to heal from the invisible wounds and lasting trauma of participating in war. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. How does a person recover after witnessing the brutality of war? And when soldiers are drawn in as a participant in the violence, how can they heal? Warfare can leave someone deeply rattled, inflicting emotional damage, not just visible injuries. And these psychological wounds may not surface till months or years after a veteran returns from combat. This is why, you know, so many vets get in trouble driving, because you drive um, defensively. You're not obeying any traffic laws or literally driving to save your life and the way you drive over there is to avoid an ambush or a vehicle-borne you know explosive or anything you just blow through everything. Travis Weiner served two tours with the U.S. Army in Iraq ending in 2008. And the one thing that's left over from this day to me is um, if I'm driving and something is on the road that doesn't necessarily belong there like a you know piece of trash or my eyes just lock onto it I don't even it's a subconscious thing. It just, boom, I just see it clearer than day because that can be the difference between, you know, life or death. It's a fear response. It's anybody can have it. You can get it from a natural disaster, a car accident, being raped. Your, your, your terror system is on high alert um, and your fear system takes over. Rita Nakashima Brock, a theologian based in Fort Worth, Texas. She grew up in a military family and has written widely about how people recover from military violence. An estimated three to 400,000 veterans now suffer effects like the fear response and other symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And if that happens a lot, you can have a chronic fear response to things, that you can be triggered in normal life by things that aren't dangerous, but they were dangerous before, like a backpack sitting in a room or a guardrail along a road. You have this distorted relationship to reality that's not the fear reality you're originally in. Reloading! It's been well known that war induces psychological and social and spiritual trauma 
and that uh, that trauma is often invisible but devastating and requires uh, a uh, psychological and a spiritual remedy. Physician Wayne Jonas of the Samueli Institute in Alexandria, Virginia, served as a lieutenant colonel in the Army Medical Corps. He treats patients today who suffer military-related chronic pain, traumatic brain injury, and post-traumatic stress disorder. When we diagnosed and named it PTSD. It was in many ways uh, a normal response to the trauma of war. In fact, Admiral Mullen refuses to use the D on the end of that, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He calls it PTS, post-traumatic stress, because it is a, a, a normal kind of response that you would expect from those kinds of injuries, and we shouldn't make it a disorder. Maybe it's just an understandable human reaction to the way organized violence can be deeply disturbing. Off the battlefield, some veterans may erupt in volcanic bursts of anger. Despair may draw them into addiction or violence against others and themselves. They may suffer nightmares, restless sleep, as well as what's called the startle response. This occurs when a person who's undergone a traumatic event hears or sees something that suddenly triggers a distressing memory of the trauma. Soldiers have exhibited these symptoms through history. It was first medically recognized as PTSD after the Vietnam era. Now the stresses of war have afflicted a new generation. I had already had combat where I lost friends. Uh, very close friends from Iraq. That's Kyle, originally from Maine. Starting in early 2005, he deployed to Iraq and later to Afghanistan. Kyle served as a second lieutenant with the National Guard and began experiencing post-traumatic stress. And I came home, and that's when I didn't say a word about it because that's when it really did have a stigma. And I said, I don't want to tell them I have something wrong. I don't want to because I don't want to get kicked out of the military. I don't want people to think I'm crazy. Kyle has since been formally diagnosed with PTSD. He now routinely attends a clinic for at-risk veterans and their families at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Kyle participated in our interview, hoping it would help other vets. At age 35, he looks back on an eventful life so far. In this program, we'll hear graphic, sometimes disturbing descriptions of war. Growing up and working on the farm, Potato harvest in, you know, October, November is can be a pretty miserable, miserable time. Cold, wet, tired, and uh, long days, hard work. And I joined the Army, and I was like, you know, this really isn't that bad at all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they put you to bed at a certain time every night and every, every day. It was something different. You got to go out and shoot guns, and I just fell in love with it. Honey lavender, green tea, American breakfast. I visited Kyle on a Saturday afternoon at his spacious, airy home on a long, wooded road in the southern New Hampshire town of Derry. For a time after returning from combat, he worked in private industry in aerospace and defense. But then Kyle accepted full-time work with the New Hampshire National Guard. He remembers his time in Afghanistan. This was a very remote area. It was almost like the, you know, the, the West Virginia of Afghanistan, almost. Um, you know, villages, some didn't have wells. Um, they had their own flour mill, still living in collots and, you know, mud structures and things like that. But 
<laughs> Everybody had a cell phone. The U.S. mission there was to stabilize the region and to control the flow of hostile forces. These included the Taliban, which stalked the American soldiers. Terrain played a huge part. So if you're going into a valley to check, you know, the valley leads directly into Pakistan. There's one way in and then there's one way out. So they have, however long you're on the, you know, the far end of the valley, they have that much time to prepare for you on the way out which was generally the case. You could almost set your watch on it that, you know, you go through this certain area on your way out, you're probably going to take contact and you're probably going to get ambushed. We were with the Afghan Uniform Police, which we had a very good relationship with. Their, their commander was one of the few that we really trusted and we worked along with um, a really good guy. And this was near the time of election for um, local leaders. And we went into this valley and we checked to see if they were valid areas where people could go and vote. In the process of doing so, I told the police commander, Chief Wahab, I said, there's one more left. Just go up that little road right there and check and see if it's there. And then we'll call it a day and we'll head back to, back to base. As he drove off, he didn't make it much more than a few hundred yards away before I heard a massive explosion. And as I looked up, there was a body flying through the air like a rag doll. It's seared into my brain. You could just see it flying. At which point, they started a pretty complex ambush on us. Um, they were firing from multiple directions. They were from what we gathered from the intelligence afterward, they took the women and children and lowered them down into a shallow well. And they were attacking from the village, firing from the village or from the structures. And uh, I'm running back and forth between vehicles trying to get a situation report, just kind of see what's happening. And as I went up, I saw move from vehicle to vehicle. You know, you could see the bullets hit in front of your feet and things like that. And I'm talking to my platoon sergeant and walking back and forth. And as he and I would stop and talk or just meet, we'd see bullets ricochet between us. So I moved up to the lead vehicle and I started seeing just the bodies everywhere, body parts everywhere. So it was a few different vehicles and, you know, an unarmored Ford Ranger with, you know, eight to ten guys either in the cab or on the back, sitting on the back, it hit an IED. Most of them were dismembered or um, horribly injured. You know, uh, Chief Wahab was in the vehicle and he was medevaced out immediately. Um, he did survive, but he was not the same after that. I saw him afterward and he was very peaked and uh, frail. I just remember one of the guys that wasn't even, in it, he wasn't injured a younger man, and he was walking around with a machine gun, just almost dragging it, and he was stunned, crying, sobbing, and, you know, there's a machine gun with a uh, belt of ammunition dragging on the ground in back of him, and there's bodies that were laying there that were essentially turned to jelly. I mean, just the overpressure from the bomb had shattered all their bones, and it looked like a wetsuit. Um, as I sat there and I talked to my fire support NCO to see what I could bring for air assets, 
I looked down and there's a human hand at my feet. And then I looked up and I saw my interpreter. He grabbed a weapon from, from one of the um, uniformed police and he was also carrying a human arm. So at that point the mission became recovery of the remains. We went around and picked up body parts and we filled two or three pickup trucks, beds, with, uh, with body parts and hauled it back. It sounds gory, it sounds horrific. I can't imagine what that would have been like. It's, it's difficult to explain. As an infantryman, everybody, you know, that's what you train for and you love it, combat. And it's not like you're not aware of what you're getting into. So I got back and I had a pack of cigarettes with me and I sat there and I didn't really want to talk to anybody. And I sat there and I think I smoked a pack of cigarettes by myself and I could feel a change in me. Nothing that, you know, prevented me from doing my job, but something changed. You see something like that and I was just numb or cold. Uh, and somewhat emotionless to it at that time, which was, I mean, that's what happens is you're there. I mean, what are you going to do, sit and cry and give up? Now, you've told me that you have experienced symptoms of PTSD. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about those symptoms? It's uh, the mindset of urgency, the combat mindset that you all you know are essentially hardwired for while you're there is that there's zero room for argument or all right, give me just a second. It's hey, do this, do it now, do it right, and move on. So it's you know, you're impatient, you're everything needs to be done and done right, and if not, you know, you're it evokes a response of, of anger or anxiety, anger-type outbursts. Um, I control it for the most part through a number of different ways, whether it's avoiding situations or meditation, um, deep breathing. I mean, I've, I've, before I even sought treatment, I used to try and, and do this and uh, try to help myself. And these self-care practices can in fact offer powerful tools for soothing anxiety and relieving other post-trauma symptoms. But to enhance his recovery, Kyle took another step and decided to seek support through counseling. He now urges other vets to consider that resource because providers are trained to help returning soldiers transition to life after combat. My biggest issue is cognitive abilities. My memory's gotten really bad. My ability to focus, remember, concentrate have essentially diminished to the point where if I try to read a book or a magazine article, I'll get 10 pages into it and realize that I didn't take in a single word because my mind is going and it's working on 10 different things. You know, it essentially just never stops. 
paranoia, the large crowds, at, you know, and that's that's tapered off. Again, it goes back to the combat mindset. Like, it's an insecure area to you. There's people in back of you, which makes me uneasy. More when I first got back, I would always choose the seat that where I could have the best view of the room with my back secure. It's drilled into you that that's, you know... And you're talking about civilian settings, restaurants. Restaurants, you name it. Crowded malls. And it made going out with my family and my kids very difficult. To the point where I just didn't want to do it anymore. Didn't want to go out? I didn't want to go out. Nope. I remember the day that I moved to New Hampshire. It was Pumpkin Festival in Keene. So about a year after I got back. Shoulder to shoulder people. And my heart was just racing. You know, I have my kids and you try like hell to enjoy it, but all you feel is like, you know, there's a threat somewhere. So I got a kid on my shoulder. I got a kid that I'm holding tight to and I'm telling my wife like, hey, you know, keep them close by. And that was usually the, uh, that was usually the issue, you know, anything that we did. Has this harmed family relationships? It has. Um, in the midst of a divorce right now. Um, and I think, you know, some of the anger outbursts or the just inability to talk or, you know, it certainly played a factor. Listening to Healing the Trauma of War, a documentary from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more about this special project, The Power of Nonviolence, to obtain audio copies or downloads of the series, and to hear more on how people can mend from post-traumatic stress, please visit humanmedia.org. The post-traumatic stress reaction to war has gone by various names through history. In the Civil War, the afflicted were said to have developed soldiers' heart. World War I combatants might suffer from shell shock. And soldiers carrying these invisible wounds home from Vietnam a generation ago sometimes faced an added burden. I didn't feel good about what I did there, and I didn't feel good about the, the whole thing. It was just a bad experience for me. Bill Simon, now living in Santa Rosa, California, was an aircraft crew chief based in Da Nang, Vietnam, starting in 1969. So, uh, yeah, I I knew that other people didn't like Vietnam veterans, and I didn't like myself for being a Vietnam veteran. Double punishment. Exactly. So my strategy was to basically repress that whole thing, like it never happened. It obviously didn't work. It doesn't work to do that, but that's the way I got by as best I could, with the help of drugs and alcohol and a lot of other distractions. Another Vietnam-era vet who battled addiction, Jim Summers of Solana Beach, California, served in the U.S. Navy Hospital Corps in the mid-'70s. When I got out of the military, I 
did what so many of us do. I put all that in a box along with my sailor hat and my dog tags and stuck it in the back of the closet and did the best I could to forget about it. Uh, but, the, but the Navy was also the place where my alcoholism got real serious. I was having a hard time living with what I was doing and had lots of unaddressed trauma issues. So uh, I continued to numb myself for a number of years, and my life fell apart, as it so often does for people like that. And then when we invaded Iraq in 2002, and I became active in Veterans for Peace, I'm a founding member of the chapter in San Diego, uh, whoa, that box came open, and there were things in there that I didn't remember I'd put there. And so I've had to deal with that as I've moved along. I felt very isolated and not, not present. In the, in the sense of being there emotionally, being there spiritually. Kind of detached? Very detached, right, from others and from myself. Um, and I got that feedback from people. People would say, you know, it's like you're not here. You know, what's going on? Depression, a lot of depression, uh, suicidal ideation. I never tried to kill myself, but I certainly thought about it on a daily basis for a long time. Daily basis. Sure, yeah. I would just have images of it. I wouldn't, I didn't get to the point where I was making a real clear plan on how to do it, but it would just come into my head. I should take myself out. You know, I wasn't happy. And especially if you're working against war or something like this, it's a challenge to put your face up against something that is so ugly. Constantly. And it's a challenge not to be depressed or angry. And I'm not the kind of guy that gets suicidal. I'm the kind of guy that gets homicidal. As a young man, I frequently went armed. Um, 45 on the seat of my truck uh, or a buck knife on my belt or worse. And uh, I have given that up long since. I'm a violent man at my core. I know this about myself. Uh, I've done a lot to ease that, but I know that I have this capacity. I don't really have many good choices except to be a pacifist. Maybe 18 was too early. Maybe 30 or 40 is too. You get your chance to make peace with the man before he sent down his angel. Travis Weiner of Boulder, Colorado, served two tours in infantry regiment, which performed counterinsurgency operations in Iraq between 2005 and 2008. And one week into being there, we had a mass casualty. Um, they, uh, the insurgents landed a couple, uh, I can't remember if it was 60s or 81s, um, into our courtyard and our patrol base, blew up like 30 of us. And this kid, um, you know, it took a bunch of shrapnel legs, but you know, he was—he wasn't going to bleed out. He was okay. Um, he recuperated for about a week. He said, "You know, I, I can't go back out there. I'm, I'm scared, and I have nightmares, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. To a person, all of us were like, "You know, that kid is just, you know, getting out of it, yada yada." We didn't understand uh, this—the science of it. And what the science tells us is that, you know, we don't know that that kid's life history. 
and we don't know how his brain works. And for him, that one mortar getting hit, which for us was one of many, I mean, we got blown up before we got blown up after. Uh, for him, that could have been, you know, devastating. Travis says he's managed to hang on through his supportive family and a physician at the VA who counseled him to cultivate self-acceptance as a way to ease his transition back to civilian life. Travis also made a commitment as part of that transition to help Iraqi refugees who are on their own healing journey. It got better for me um, about six months in and working with Veterans for Peace and trying to channel some of my anger and understand that I didn't hate, you know, the Iraqi people. You know, for years I just hated the, it was like battery acid, the, the Iraqis, because at least in my first tour, you know, it's, it's insurgency. I mean, they pick you off, you know, they can't fight you in the open. So they just pick us off and, you know, it was one, you know, a handful of times, if that, that we actually got to see them and fight them. And so you just, you know, it drives you insane. And, but, but letting go of that anger, working with the Iraqi refugees in Massachusetts, um, it was cathartic for me. It helped a tremendous deal. Army band Bugler plays taps on a snowy day at Arlington National Cemetery. Recovery from the emotional scars of war is rarely achieved acting alone. Many returned soldiers need the comradeship of fellow veterans who understand from direct experience the special challenges, the pain, the loneliness, and in some cases the shame carried by surviving combatants. Theologian Rita Nakashima Brock. It's a kind of emotional solitary confinement where you you can't connect to anybody because some of the deepest places in yourself are shut down and isolated in your afraid that they won't love you if they know what those are. How can they move to a place of a feeling of greater connection? I think the first step is for someone they can trust to be a trustworthy friend. And that's generally another veteran, but not always. Um, and, uh, And once they have at least one relationship of trust. In the military, it's often a chaplain, interestingly enough, because the chaplains are the only ones who um, can keep a confidence. Uh, A clinician has to report a diagnosis, but a chaplain doesn't make a diagnosis. They just talk to people. And I think good chaplains can be that first place of of processing and trust. Um, And a good chaplain will uh, listen to the suffering and help the person process it. You're trying to get down at the deep disturbances in uh, the psychological and the spiritual areas that the trauma caused. Physician Wayne Jonas provides whole-person care to veterans at Army clinics. You have to say, I don't know everything uh, about why this has happened to me, but I believe that there is the ability to have a positive, caring, nurturing, loving response come out of this. 
Uh, and if I believe that, then I begin to look for it and I can begin to see it. And that can guide me uh, to a place that helps me become more peaceful, less angry, less reactive in those areas. Now, I may have to go through a lot of anger to get to that spot, and that's okay. But you need to go beyond yourself and realize that there are caring social support individuals that are here that love you uh, and that will be on that journey with you. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Jason Isbell and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Short Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Healing the Trauma of War, part of our project, The Power of Nonviolence, is Humankind Program number 248. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.